Well, it is December, and we have every of us in our home and our own convictions celebrate holiday something different to us. But there is something beneficial as a church from the Christmas message, the reflection on a God who came down to us, and just the connection with people. And so, for the next four Sabbaths, we have Christmas. Um, Two of them I will be giving, and then I'm going on vacation, and others will be sharing a different angle of the Christmas story. We begin our first Sabbath in December, first one with a big wreath behind me. Just let this season minister to you. It's an awesome story, one that we hold on to, and it's been quite a year, but let's end it strong. Let's end it with Jesus at the center, and as we get into this message today, um, the audiovisual team told me that I'm one of the very few in-person things, so they said, be dynamic. <laughs> and the message is pretty strong, and it's, it's aimed right at us, and it's calling us into a, revolution, a, a revolutionary way of living. And so we need to pray. Uh, would you pause with me? Pray over this message. Father in heaven, we're talking to you right now because none of us can do what we're asking. Only you can. We're asking that you would apply truth to our hearts, transform us, open up our hearts to receive you. Uh, it takes a miracle to do that. And so we're asking you that our time together would be more than just words, but you'd speak through your word and that you'd go beyond what one of us can do, and you'd apply it to every unique situation represented among us, that each of us could walk away from this time spent reflecting on you, called into your presence, and awakened to you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A revolutionary is an exhilarating word. Don't you like that word? Revolutionary. And the definition of it I don't know that it's up yet there, but I have it right here. This is Merriam-Webster. Merriam-Webster defines it as a sudden, complete change. That's a revolution. A fundamental change in political organization, especially the overthrow or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another by the governed. Or a fundamental change in the way of thinking or visualizing something different, a change in time. So that is the word revolution. People like Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, George Washington, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, agree with them or not, they were people who stood against a system. They said, I'm going to dare to live in a counter-narrative. They were revolutionaries, and I think that there's a little revolutionary inside each one of us. And that revolutionary that's inside of us comes out. Values no longer allow us to maintain the established system. When we say, no, I can't do that, to do that would be compromise. I have to go this direction. And so we see these convictions bringing some of the history's most exciting stories. Revolution, it was an intolerance of an oppressive monarchy that launched the French Revolution. It was, among the slaves, a preference for 
risking revolt over staying in slavery that led to the Haitian Revolution. And our own country is imprinted with revolution when the 13 colonies said, no more, we're not doing the taxation without representation, and they started dumping tea overboard, launched a revolution, put into words when Matthew Henry says, what does Matthew Henry say? Matthew Henry says, give me liberty or give me death. That was Matthew Henry. He's saying, I would rather die than be slave to this system. My values don't let me keep going this way. That's the spirit of revolution. You feel it. it it's what brought Martin Luther King Jr. to the stage in our nation's capital to tell the world that he had a dream. And a reformer, you feel it when you read about him stand before the diet of worms and he says to them, looking them in the eye, knowing they can kill him, and he says, here I stand, I can do no other. Doesn't that get you stirred up? Revolution is, is something that riles us up. Like we feel that's emotion. I'm going to stand on this thing. And the Christmas story, it is charged with the Spirit. So, Scripture, the, the Word became flesh. Now, it might be a little cryptic, but that is saying the one in the highest position, the great Almighty God, took a revolution and he became one of the lows. And it's revolutionary because, remember, if we go back to the definition, I do have it on the screen here. The definition that I read is that revolutionary, oh boy, this is like, this is like, uh, just keep going even though nothing's happening right today. Revolutionary, notice what it says about the government. It is choosing one form of government in favor of another. That's what Christmas is. That is God, who has a government of selflessness, coming down. It's the selfless king coming into the kingdom of selfishness and saying, I am going to spark a revolution of taking this government, selflessness, and coming and ref a people who are governed, enslaved by self-love. Do you see the revolution? The revolution is from selfishness to selflessness. He comes into the world that is obsessed with self, and he says, there's another way to do this, and I'm going to model it by being in the highest position and coming and being another way to live, a far better way to live. So we are going to follow this revolution. We're going to follow up, then down, then up. He's up from all eternity in the highest position as Almighty God. He comes down by being born in human form, and then he rises up again, and forever he's glorified in heaven. So we're going to go up, then down, then up. And this revolution invites us in, first of all, by saying that God was way up there. Before it says in verse 14, so we're in John chapter 1, in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Before it says that, it says little bit small there. And it says, in the beginning was the Word. So the Word is a expression, a, a, a name for Jesus. So in the beginning, Jesus was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That's the highest position you can be. 
Nothing was made without him that has been made. He's creator God. So he's up there at the highest position. And then John, John the Baptist, is, is in this first chapter of the book of John, and he catches on. He sees that there is greatness here. John 15, he says, it is he who's, oh, we're good. So John 15, I'm going to just grab a Bible because I made that too small. John chapter 1, verse 15, says, John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This of he who, of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. So here's John the Baptist, the prophet, and he's looking at this one that he saw the dove come, and he's saying, this is not just a normal person. This is one that is before us. He was before us. And he continues to say, his sandals, I'm not even worthy to tie those things. He's holy. He's far above me. John also said things like, he must increase, I must decrease. So John caught this vision and he realized this is revolutionary. This is God coming into our world with a completely different approach. Rather than rising up in power, he took his power and came down in love. So baby Jesus... You're going to see baby Jesus in nativity scenes, windows. And most of the time, there's no thought given to the revolution. But every time that decorative nativity scene is an illustration of baby Jesus who launches a revolution against our corrupt system. Every time you see the manger, you think there's God and he's doing something none of us would do. He took his high position and he came down in love rather than staying up there. It's a revolutionary thing. So he was up. Unfortunately, there's another way to take a high position. One is to be the creator God. And you have a high position is one of selfless sovereignty. He is sovereign and he's not challenged in his sovereignty, but he's completely selfless in being the highest one in the universe. Another position in just glaring off the creature's selfish ascendancy. So we have a creator who is selfless in his sovereignty, and then we have the creature who is selfishly trying to get higher and higher. Every one of that nature from. And so we're going to pause and think about this one that's not so good. It's good that God is high. It's not good that we rise up to the highest place. We never. So we have a creator comes down, he descends, and then we are creatures that by nature want to climb up, promote self, and ascend. It's a counter story. I took a class on Christian leadership by Stanley Patterson. Anyone ever meet Stanley Patterson? He is a great guy. Stanley Patterson is on a farm, but he's got a PhD, so he's a real down-to-earth person with a great brain. And he, te- I've taken, he, he taught a class called uh, something about leadership, and he is passionate, passionate about the biblical model of leadership, not the one that ascends and dominates, but the one that said, I have, to, uh, I have to do this. He said, I comfort myself that some of my students will teach people that ascendant behavior is disgusting to God. And I said, Pastor Ryan, you need to teach your people that ascendant behavior 
is disgusting to God. So I want to give some comfort to my professor today. In this study, I want to comfort my professor by all of us opening and exposing the truth that that selfishness we're born die, and baby Jesus needs to spark a revolution in our hearts and change that very nature, something that is so countercultural that the world looks and says, that is different. That is a story I haven't seen anywhere else. And so we're going to invite each of us, Professor, by recognizing that ascendant behavior is disgusting to God. Here are five facts. So this is the type of high position that we were never intended to have. God's high position is good. Ours is not. Selfishness is because we give it civilized names like uh, upward mobility, promotions, success. And we should aim for success in everything we do. It, it honors God, but let's be careful not to define success as achieving a high position where we never were intended to be, a place we don't belong. And so we give it these other names and it sneaks in to all kinds of places that we didn't expect to see selfishness. Dr. Patterson taught in that class that that ladder we climb, the ladder of success, or wood, but in order for us to get up, we have to step on people. That's how we climb up. We have to step on others, and that is the system that baby Jesus was coming. It sneaks in, and we find that we are putting others down to build ourselves up is what took Lucifer down. You've heard these verses before. Look back at Isaiah 14. And Isaiah 14 is that list of I will, I will. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. All these self-ascendant things. I will do this. I will rise up. And then it ends with this, the opposite of rising up. It says, but you are brought down to the realms of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So ironically, Lucifer, in his effort to go up, was actually cast down. We know in Ezekiel 28 that it was pride that lifted him up, and he was cast down because of his pride. So the irony is that as us creatures try to go to a place we never belong to, it's actually the very reason that God in love pushes us back down because so Lucifer took his fall from selfishness and selfishness number three never ends well just doesn't if there's something in your life that is about love of self it's going to end in pain it's going to end in hurting others in fact with Lucifer it says when he was cast down is, is he was cast down to shame which is hell so notice this, I'm going to say it strong, but pride ends in hell. That's where pride ends. Praise God it ends, but that's where pride ends. That's where pride takes us. Selfishness never ends well. I enjoy bluegrass music, and there's a band, I don't think they're together anymore, the band Nickel Creek, and they're, they're young, uh, young adults who played incredibly well. Bluegrass guitar solo, and then I was hit with the words when the lyrics came on. It says in this song, Reasons Why, knowing how hard it hurts when we fall, we lean another ladder against the wrong wall. So we're licking our wounds 
our wounded pride from falling down, and we take that ladder and we lean it up, and even if we climb to the top, we'd realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. So the message is, stop climbing. You're going to end up in a place that's so disappointing. This is the system for you to live in. It doesn't have a ladder. It has a Savior. And you don't climb up to get somewhere. You surrender yourself to me and you find all the things you were looking for on that ladder. There's another story to live in and it doesn't involve a ladder leaning against the wrong wall. Selfishness never ends well. And selfishness loses. There's a hopeful thought. Back in John chapter 1, it says in verse 5, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when Jesus comes as flesh, it's in him, but there's this promise, the darkness is not so great that the light won't conquer it. Eventually, the love of power will be defeated love. Eventually, that darkness of self-love will have enough light of the selfless God, it will win. Selfishness loses. And selfishness is the only option we have without Christ. It's the only story there is. So it's our only universal narrative. I was listening to a sermon recommended to me by Matt called The Fatal Blow from Ty Gibson. So I recommend it to you. If you want the link, you can just go to YouTube, type it in. But I have a sermon blog with that right. Since Cheryl, who wrote a book, he studied mythologies around the world. So he studied these stories that we make up, and he thought with human creativity he'd get all these different stories, but what he found, compared them all, is that there's one story. It just has a variety of costumes. So over and over again, the names change, but it's the same story. And here's how Ty Gibson in that sermon summarizes this universal narrative. It's a narrative of power over. It's not coming down authoritarian, having power over somebody. It, is a, a, it has a hero who uses force to fight evil. So the good guy does exactly what the bad guy does, and he's the hero. Totally opposite of Jesus. He doesn't come with the same tactics as the bad guy. He comes with opposite. He comes down. He comes as a baby. And then there's this myth. Of if something has been wrong to me, I can be violent and redeem that thing. Well, Jesus says, no, you don't redeem that thing with violence. In fact, he has a redemption story that is completely opposite. So here's this universal narrative. It's the only option we have without Christ. There's only one story to live in if Christ doesn't come as a baby and show us another one. And it's what's natural to us. The human nature is a nature that loves self. I was listening to another song, and this one has a terrible message. It's from the soundtrack of The Sound of Music. And it's called No Way to Stop It. So it refers to self in that song, that all-absorbing character, that fascinating creature, that super special feature. And then here's the conclusion, the final few lines of the song. It says, so every star on every whirling planet and every constellation in the sky revolves around the center of the universe, that lovely thing called I. It says there's no way to stop it. No, there's no way to stop it. And I know, though I cannot tell you why, just as long as I'm living, just as long as I'm living, there'll be nothing else as wonderful as I. Here's the 
the thing I want us to get. First of all, I can tell you why. That's our nature, it's selfishness. Second of all, there is a way to stop it. Baby Jesus in a manger stops it. The gospel stops it. This thing that feels so unstoppable, this force of self-love in our world, there's a way to stop it. There's another story we can live in. It's revolutionary love. So we're going to go now down with Jesus. He was up in the right place. We go up in the wrong place. And then we have, he comes down. The word became flesh. It is entirely countercultural. I have a sister who's a missionary in a foreign country, and uh, there's not a lot of awareness of the Christian story at all, where she's serving. But they do have in December a few public displays of Christmas decorations. So there's a tree in one of the shopping centers, and you'll see bells and different things. Enough Christmas awareness that it opened up a conversation between her and someone from that country, and she got to share the biblical perspective of Christmas. And amazingly, as my sister shared this story, she learned that this, this woman had never heard of baby Jesus. Can you imagine that? Like, even if you don't believe in baby Jesus in America, you've heard of baby Jesus. This woman had never heard of baby Jesus. So she explained uh, in a second language, so it's a little choppy, she explained to her what we believe about a God who came down to us. You know what the response, the first time ever hearing this story, you know what the response was of this woman? That's crazy. Yeah. She says, she asked a confused question to clarify. She says, so your God is a baby? Now, it might sound like a childish question, but that is the, that's the appropriate response. Wait a minute, you're telling me you have a God, and now you're telling me your God is a baby. There's something counterintuitive about that, right? Something that doesn't quite work, and it's exactly the emphasis. It's, it's a revolutionary statement. Your God chose to be a baby. In fact, it's so counterintuitive that in Scripture... It says things like in John 1, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. When he came, even the people who were created by him, they looked and said, I don't get it. Your God's a baby? And then the gospel goes out things like the message of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. It's countercultural. This is a foolish idea. Because your God is doing something totally opposite we'd expect a God to do. So this, God, this message of selflessness is countercultural. Another thing we selflessness, it makes friends. You want to make friends? Be selfless. Jesus says it this way in John 15, 15. He says, I do not call you servants, but I've called you a friend. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've made it all known to you. Jesus came to us with every right to be, to be over us as Lord, and he is over us as Lord, and he took that right he has and he came beside us as a friend. So selflessness makes friends. It makes us friends with God. It makes us friends with others. Selflessness serves others. This was a to get for the disciples. They were often thinking about 
self-ascendancy. Asking questions, arguing about who's the greatest. And in Mark 10, a fascinating story. I'm just going to skim over in Mark 10. But James and John come to Jesus and they say, we have a request. I want you to grant that one's at the right and one's at your left. So their request is a request that is completely in line with the governing system of this world, self-ascendancy. Hey, we got this in with you. We're putting in the time right now. We're working hard. So could we get this payout at the end that I sit, one sits at your right, one sits at your left. What does Jesus do then? I mean, what would you do if you came as a baby, you sparked a revolution, you invited people in it, and then some of the closest people to you don't get it? They're still living in this system that you're revolting against. So I imagine that Jesus took a deep breath and counted to ten. Because he's thinking, didn't you know I, I came as a baby? This is, not, this is not the revolution I'm inviting you into. And then he basically tells them, you don't know what you're talking about. Then he says these words. Well, first of all, the others come and they're indignant. Why are they indignant? Because they also have ideas of self-ascendancy. They don't want someone else to get above them. And verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So what do they do? Those people out there, they lord over. And then they have authority over those that they lead. So those people do that. What does he say next? So those people lord over others. Then he looks at them and he says, not so with you. Aren't those powerful words? Not so with you. Yeah, our world is full of people who live their life out of self-love. They can do that, but not so with you. You are a Christian. You've joined a revolution that baby Jesus started. Not so with you. And so yeah, maybe other people talk to their wife that way, but not so with you. Maybe other people cheat to get ahead, but not so with you. Maybe other people spend all their assets to satisfy and please them, but not so with the church. We give. We serve. Because Jesus invited us into a revolution where we can't be lifting up self. It's not so with us. And then he continued to explain to them after saying, that's not the way you live. He says, I came to serve. The Son of Man came to to serve, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on, I'm sure he did this many, many times, but one of the most striking we have uh, examples of service in the gospel is when he kneels down, once again, down, and washes his disciples' feet. We got an awesome portrayal of that with our youth and how they led us in a foot-washing service. Just notice the revolutionary spirit, it is not because he's powerless. That's the position of a servant. It actually says, so verse 2, it says, Jesus, this is John 13, verse 2, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. The verse right before he takes up a towel and washes his disciples' feet affirms that he has all the power in the universe. If I have all the power in the universe, I don't have to wash feet. But he's a revolutionary with all the power in the universe. What does love do with power? It serves. He takes 
infinite power, and it says that he got up from, from the meal, took off his outer clothes, and wrapped a towel around his waist. What an amazing, revolutionary picture. I've got power. I'm going to leverage it all to serve others. That's the character of God. And then he, he does that. He washes their feet. Peter protests. He invites them into the revolution, says this is what it's all about. And then he gives the lesson. He says, now that I've done this to you, I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. You do it to others because no student is greater than his master. You live a revolutionary way of living where you take all the power you have and you kneel down and serve others with your power. And then he says, blessed are you if you do these things. It's not pitied, are you? You're not the one that's, that's you know, out of luck because you had to give all your power away. You're blessed when you take your power and kneel before someone else and serve. It's revolutionary. Jesus came down. And finally, well not finally, love denies self. These are some, this is a collection, I'm jumping all over scripture, this is a collection of powerful, convicting examples of God's sparking revolution. Little lines where Jesus threw out invitations to join the revolution, and this one comes from Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, he's inviting us into revolution. You want to follow me? Deny self. That's the very first thing. Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the other story. That's the one baby Jesus came. Lose your life and find life. John the Baptist really did get this when he saw Jesus and he says he's high and lifted up, he had an opportunity actually as a prophet and real respected to ascend in selfishness. They gave him a great opportunity. They said, they came to John and say, are you the Messiah? Well, what an awesome opportunity to claim a high position. Maybe I'm not the Messiah, but if you think I am, then we could, I could be a superstar. And he says, no. Are you prophet? No. Or are you Elijah? No. And they say, then who are you? What do you say about yourself? Now, every one of us, we, get, we light up when someone asks us that question. What do you say about yourself? We love talking about ourselves. John the Baptist quotes scripture. When they ask him that question, what do you say about yourself? John the Baptist says, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. When, when John the Baptist was asked to promote self. You tell us about you. He put self under Christ. I'm the one here to make straight his way. John the Baptist joined the revolution. Selfless, selfishness gives life. Literally, eternally, in Jesus Christ, he gave life. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the, the revolutionary himself gives life in selflessness, but he also invites us to give life. And there's so many broken things in our lives. Me choosing to deny self and live selfless 
will give life to the people around me. It's a life-giving way to live. So that's down. Now we need to go back up. Because the revolution does not stay down. Jesus came down, and as eternal God, high and lifted up right now, he's still selfless. All right, follow me on this. He's still selfless, but he's not in a low position. So, if the gospel stopped there, down here, that would be such a bummer. It'd be such a bummer to humble yourself, suffer, and, and give, and sacrifice, and never have any lifting up in the end. God doesn't want us to stay down. Jesus came down, God lifted him up, and though he's still selfless, he is now highly exalted. Specifically because he came down, he is highly exalted, and we are told that he receives glory and power and honor and might forever and ever. And Philippians, this is the, this is the story we followed a few weeks ago, very similar, similar to this message. A God that's highly exalted in glory who comes down and again is lifted up to glory. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So that's Jesus lifting up. But then there's us being lifted up. And this one takes a little bit of nuancing here. Because I just said how we're not supposed to lift up. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't want us to stay down and depressed and suffering for eternity. He says things like, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He says in Habakkuk, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like that of a deer. He makes me tread on high places. It says in Psalm, your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. He wants us to have joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So selflessness is willing to forfeit joy for a moment to love others, but it's not willing to say, I'm never going to experience joy in eternity. God wants to lift us up. And here is the crucial difference that makes it not selfish, not self-love. The crucial difference is who lifts us up. Let's go back to Lucifer. Lucifer had a high position. Before he, before he saw a higher position, it says you were anointed as a guardian cherub. He had a high position. And it was a good thing. His high position was a right thing because it says, for so I ordained you. His high position was good because God put him in that position. When God exalts us, it's love. When we exalt ourselves, it's sin. And that's what it says. In other words, in 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that it, in the proper time, who? Who may lift you up? He may exalt you. God's plan in this revolution, the up, the down, and the up, is that we actually, sometimes even on this earth, but definitely for eternity, will be in the high places. But it's not a high place of self-ascendancy. It's a high place of God lifting up someone who was low that he loves. He lifts us up. How precious is that to know that every bit of exaltation and joy and high place is God, the God of the universe, specifically taking you and inviting you to a high place. When God lifts us up, it's love. 
When we lift self up, it's sin. So here is revolutionary love. What I want to do is invite you to join the revolution today. Selfless love is still just as revolutionary as it was when baby Jesus was born and put in a manger. It's still just as strange in our culture. It's still just as hard to imagine. But we are called, as a church, to be revolutionaries, to live a totally different story. This is uh, a lengthy quote, but it's an invitation to join a revolution. And it's from the book Education, page 154. I can't get it up there, but I got it here. So, here's an invitation to join the revolution. Book Education by Ellen White, page 154. It says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. He deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. See, we're revolutionaries. All who bear his name are to disprove that claim. And it continues. It was to give his own life as an illustration of of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it as in the practical life to choose the right because it is right, to stand for truth at the cost of suffering sacrifice. That's revolutionary. To stand for truth because this system is wrong, even if this counter story is hard, I'm going to stand for truth. We live in a world right now that is charged with revolutionary spirit. There's a whole bunch of people who are choosing things that are frustrating to protest and riot. And some of those things are well-founded. But here's the thing. Every single specific revolution is a frustration with the symptoms of selfishness, like injustice and inequality. They're frustrations with the system the symptoms of this system, but baby Jesus wasn't hitting the symptoms. He was attacking the very system. So the revolution that he calls us to, the true revolution, which is revolutionary love, it's not just a frustration with a little thing here. It's against the very narrative that self lives in. And so when we join the revolution, we're not just joining one thing here that the news talks about or one thing here that Facebook is blowing up with. We're saying, I'm choosing to die to self and live in a different story. So that is a big picture. I just have to ask practically, practically, how do we do that? Selfless love is unnatural for me, which means it's a miracle if I can have it. So if it's a miracle, then what we need to do right now to join the revolution is we need, moment by moment, we need for God to crucify self and bring selfless love to life. So how do I join the revolution? The revolution, I can't, I can't do it by just being tough. I, I, I want to be a revolutionary. I have to do it by saying, God, you've got to work a miracle in me because there's no way I can live a revolutionary, loving life by my strength. So would you put to death self 
in this very moment, and would you bring to life a love that's foreign to me? So when you see Christmas decorations, when you see a wreath behind you, a a nativity scene in a window, when you open a gift or give a gift or hear away in a manger or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, whatever it is, I invite you to use every Christmas symbol this season as an invitation to join the revolution. Every time you hear that or see that, say, hear the words of Jesus saying, not so with you. Hear him saying, come to me, deny self. You know the man Zacchaeus. We don't think of him as a Christmas character. But Zacchaeus was living that, that path of self-ascendancy. And Jesus came along, and Zacchaeus was in a tree. And remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus? He says, Zacchaeus, you come down. Now he said that because he's in a tree. But spiritually, I'm going to extend this story, we're all perched in a tree. And Jesus doesn't come and call us to rise up to join a revolution. He calls your name and says, you, come down. Come down. What would it look like if selfless love, if I took myself and came down in my home, in my marriage? my parenting? What if I choose to come down? What if I choose, what would it look like in our church if we took self and we heeded the words of Christ and we came down? What would it look like in our community? It would be revolutionary. So when you hear a Christmas song, you see a, a Christmas symbol, hear the words of Jesus also saying your name and saying, you come down. When someone says, Merry Christmas, Well, accept that for what it is. And then hear also the words of Jesus saying, hey, join the revolution, the one that baby Jesus started, the selfless revolution. And so we're going to have a a close to this service, but i got to pray before I leave. I want you to just join me in prayer. Father God, it takes a miracle. So that's what we pray right now. We pray that we could crucify self by the power of Jesus. And you could put in us something totally foreign and revolutionary and awesome and satisfying and make us people who have revolutionary selfless love. And I pray this Christmas season could just extend that message over and over again and transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.